If you're joining us online, thank you very, very much for joining us online. We got Tracy lives in Hendersonville, but she's watching from Orlando. Got John and Helen from Abingdon, Virginia. Rochelle from Newark, Ohio. And then another one from Ohio as well. We got a little Ohio contingent, so go Browns today. And also, hey, the other campuses, let me just say the Wake Weekend has gone phenomenal. It's probably our first event, so to speak, as we kind of emerge from COVID. So great job, Zach Trantham. Great job, all the students. Student pastors, uh, leaders, thank you for uh, for leading. And this is in a different time of year, but great job. Go ahead and thank the leaders as well. And hey, let me just say this, students, because uh, there's there's students that uh, made a commitment either yesterday afternoon to live for the Lord. Some of them actually came to Christ this weekend. Many of them are being baptized all over seven campuses around Western North Carolina and different services today. So students, great, great job. I love the way Dan put it yesterday is, listen, you know what? You might just change the world, all right? You might just change the world. And I would say this, parents, Sometimes when these things happen, what happens is when they come home and they're like, man, God really moved in my life, or they're all fired up, or can I get baptized, or I'm even called to ministry, or these different kinds of stories, sometimes what I've seen in parents and maybe even in a church is just like, man, there's just a slight little bit of envy, a little bit of, you know what, I'm 40 years old and I wish that was going on in my life. I'm 55 years old and I wish that I could have a fresh encounter with the Lord just like you did. But I wish I could just dial the clock back a little bit and and, and know what it's like to be so fired up for the Lord. I don't care what people think when I worship or that I'm getting baptized or any of that at all. Uh, when I saw the students and, and some of the decisions they were making, I thought there's a book out, or it's actually been out for a while, called Rocket Man. And Rocket Man is basically about how astronauts feel when they come back from their journey. And there's one about John Glenn, and John Glenn, is he's been back, and for like two months, all he did after he returned from space is just kind of walk around, almost in a daze, almost in a stupor, and he kept looking up at the sky. And he walked around, and while he was a little stupefied, a little bit dazed, he was so amazingly happy because he could not get over what he had encountered. And some of these students, and what my prayer is for you, what my prayer is for me, what my prayer is for this church, is that we would see today in a text, we would walk in the footsteps today of a man who thousands of years ago experienced to some degree what the students experienced this Friday and Saturday. And so what I want you to do is I want you to turn your Bibles to Isaiah chapter six, Isaiah chapter six. This would be one of the top 10 mountain peak passages in your Bible. This is in a section that we are kind of in in our year of the Bible called uh, the major prophets. There's major prophets and there's minor prophets and then we'll get to the New Testament after Memorial Day. Uh, but major and minor do not have to do with one's important, one's not important. All right, one's you got to pay attention to, one you can kind of blow off. It's really just about the length of their book. And Isaiah is called the golden tongue preacher. This is the guy, Hebrew scholars say, this guy wrote better, more eloquent language than anybody else in the Old Testament. This, he talks more about Christ than almost any other writer in the Old Testament. His book, Isaiah, is called The Bible in Miniature. There's 66 chapters in the Bible. There's 66 books in the Bible, 66 chapters in the book of Isaiah. But in Isaiah chapter 6, what you see is you see him have an encounter, a fresh encounter with God that changes him. And I would say two groups of people watching today. One group is you might just be kicking the tires of the Christian faith. 
You're like, I'm not sure. Uh, somebody invited me, and you know, I was kind of tired of being quarantined, so I thought I'd go to church, all right? And you're kicking the tires. Our prayer for you is for you to understand Christianity is not a set of beliefs as much as it is an encounter with a holy God. But I would say for a lot of us as well, you're a Christian. You know what it's like to say, you know what, I'm going to heaven. I, I know Jesus is my savior, but the truth of the matter is if we were to kind of peel back a layer or two of your heart, what we would see is, you know what, there was a time when I was a little more fired up about the Lord than I am right now. I'm not sure how it happened, but somehow I've drifted just a little bit. And the message you're gonna to see today is no matter who you are, no matter where you've been, no matter how long you have been gone, we can walk in Isaiah's footsteps you can experience to some degree what Isaiah experienced and you get a fresh encounter with God. And what happens is when I embrace God for who he is, then and only then do I see myself for who I really am. When I see God in his exalted place, then I see me in my place. And when I see God in his place, me in my place, then what tends to happen is all the other stuff tends to fall into place. And so Isaiah chapter six is where we're gonna be. And uh, again, as we go through this, let me read the text. At least I'm gonna read the first half, give you a principle. This feels, I felt so inadequate all week long. How do I outline this? How do I do it? I mean, it's everything is like kind of walking on holy ground. But I wanna give you a couple of things to hold on to. If you're like, I want a fresh encounter with God. So what are the bare minimums? What has to happen if I'm gonna get a fresh encounter with God? So let me read the first few verses, give a principle. And then the second one, and then we'll wrap, try to wrap it up in a bow after that. So Isaiah chapter six, here's what it is. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord. Now keep that verse up there real quick. Let me, be, let me make sure my language is precise here. Uh, details in the Bible are not irrelevant. Right? God did not lack words to say and then decide to say, you know what, I'm gonna put a detail in there that makes no difference. Sometimes they're not that inspiring. You get all these details and hard to pronounce names and you're like, that's not all of the Bible is equally inspiring, but all of the Bible is equally inspired. And God wants us to know there's a context in which the story happened and that same context is mimicked often today. We'll come back to that. In the year that King Uzziah died, technically it's 740 BC, but it's a lot more than that. I saw the Lord sitting on a throne, high and lifted up, and the train of his robe filled the temple. Above him stood the seraphim. Their bed literally means burning ones. It's angels. We'll come back to that. All right, we're not talking about Teletubbies. We're not talking about little three-year-olds and diapers with bows and arrows. Believe me, that's not what we're talking about. But each had six wings. With two, he covered his face. With two, he covered his feet. And with two, he flew. And one called out to another. And this is the idea they did this over and over and over. Some of you are like, I don't like repetition in songs. I don't like when we sing songs over and over and over and over again. Well, here's just my deal. Is, you know, I don't think any angel in heaven has like autonomy. I think they sing exactly what God wants them to sing. And what you see here is, this is the song. They see over and over and over and over. And they make another trip around the throne and they see something awesome about God and God's holiness that they just sing it again. And what are they singing? They called out to one another, holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full 
of his glory. And the foundations of the threshold shook at the voice of him who called, and the house was filled with smoke. And I said, woe is me. This is the response. I'm gonna read this verse. We're gonna stop, and we're gonna talk about the first five verses, and then we're gonna get to, and if, if, if you stopped right here, this would be like terrible, terrible news for all of us. If all it ended up with is verse five, and you're like, all right, let's pray, and we're done. We would be done. That would be it, because that's how Isaiah's feeling. He said, and I said, woe is me, for I am lost. Literally, I'm coming undone. For I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. Why? Why do you feel that way? Because my eyes have seen the king, they have seen the Lord of hosts. So in the year that King Uzziah died, I don't know how much, uh, depending on if you grew up doing Bible study, let me just give you a kind of a cliff note version of the kings in the Old Testament. Most of the kings in the Old Testament, most of the kings of Israel were terrible kings. They were terrible leaders. They oftentimes just got like what our leaders get. They got corrupted. They ended up going away from the Lord. They ended up bending their ethics. But every now and then you would have a good king. David was a good king, even though he got crazy in the middle there. Uzziah was also a good king. He was probably a top five king in Israel. He did some awesome stuff, maybe won battles. He was good in economy. He got the import export business just flowing. He was a great military leader. He invented some like weapons that would beat down some enemies of Israel that they had always gotten beaten up by. I mean, this was a guy, but right at the end, he gets kind of wonky and prideful and God basically takes him out. What you have to know is, he was a king for 52 years. He became king at 16 years of age. And he hit his knees and he said, God, I need you to lead this country. I need you. And God blessed him and prospered him. And so for 52 years, he leads Israel. I mean, imagine what that'd be like for our country. We don't have a king, obviously, but just imagine if, imagine if we had a president for 52 years and he led well. And he led good, and the economy flourished, and it prospered. All was going well, and then all of a sudden the news comes out, boom, the president is dead. I mean, people would be in a panic. They're like, what happened? The guy, the guy that was on the throne, he's no longer there. That's, that's the year that King Uzziah died. And we don't have time for this, but some of us have, some of us have Uzziahs in our life. Some of us have those people in our life who are thinking, you know what? Life cannot go on unless this person is in my life. And one of the best things you can know, whether it be about a preacher, whether it be about somebody that's very important in your life, even the best of men, even the best of men are simply men at best. Even the best of women are just women at best. If a man of God dies, nothing of God dies. And when you look at this text, it took a throne on earth to be emptied for Isaiah to understand that the throne in heaven was most definitely not empty. And so when we look here, let me just bring out a few phrases for you. Verse one, I'm not gonna spend as much time on all the verses, but verse one's key. Here's what he says. He says, I saw the Lord. Now, we don't really know how he saw the Lord. We don't know if it's a vision, a dream, whether he's asleep or awake. We don't, know, we don't know how he saw the Lord. John chapter 12, verse 41 says, who he really saw was a pre-incarnate Jesus. 
John says, you know what? All this stuff Isaiah talked about over there in Isaiah 6, he's talking about Jesus before Bethlehem, before Nazareth, before the cross, before the manger scene, he sees Jesus. And so when you look at a text like this, you're like, man, what, what can I do? What's, what's he doing there? And it says simply, he's sitting on a throne. I love that. He said he's sitting. He's not struggling. He's not striving. He's not straining. He's not thinking, I wonder what are we going to do? The, the king down there died. That was not on our 10-year plan. What are we going to do? There's none of that at all. He's just sitting there in repose, 100% calm. Why? Why is he sitting on a throne when hell is breaking loose down on earth? Because he's in control, folks. He is sovereign. He is in control. He knows he's in control. Everybody in the throne room knows he's in control. The question is, when you and I have burdens on our heart, do we know he's in control? The CPR of the Christian life, when things are going crazy in your life, is to go, you know what? God is in control. God sees. God knows. God is powerful. And so I'm going to trust in that. And so you're like, oh, what? What about the big stuff? <laughs> the big stuff? Just a question. Somebody on a throne room in God, the thrice holy God, sitting there, spoke the world into being. Do you honestly think anything's like a big deal to him? Do you think things like, like, man, I got no idea how the prodigal's ever gonna come home. I have no idea how that marriage is ever gonna be resurrected. All right, nothing is a big deal to God. Now he can work in your life and it's important to him, but as far as like, I'm not sure I can handle that, you don't ever see that at all. Why? Because he's high and lifted up. The malady in church in America right now is the fact that he is low and watered down. That we 100% elevate, how do we meet Tom and Susie and meet their needs and how do we orchestrate church around them? And just loved ones, one of the things we've grown in is our target audience, so to speak, is the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. And if we can target a worship service around the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit, guess what? Then he's gonna bring the friends. He's gonna bring the people. And so bottom line is, he is high and lifted up and it says the train of his robe filled the temple. All right, some, some, of, you, uh, some of you ladies, when you got married, if you, oh man, you had one of those like, Long trains. What, is, what does that symbolize? It symbolizes honor. And like you're, you're the attention. You're the subject matter of the day. Just a little memory down, uh, walk down memory lane. This is like, uh, this is Lori and I. We're kneeling in our wet. Look at that train. Look at that train. That is, her bridesmaids, when she would move, had to pick up the train, all right? Had to like move it around. Why? Because that's like, oh. That's awesome. You're like, that's amazing. Now listen, as amazing as that was and is, what it says here is the Lord's train. He said it filled the temple. What that means is it goes from the front all the way to the back, back and front, front to back, front to back, back to front, back, doubling over, over and over until the whole temple is filled. In other words, you know what? It's, it's what we say all the time. The Bible's not even about us. He's for us, but it's not about us. And it says he fills the temple. And then it says the seraphim. As I said, it's, uh, those are like literally burning ones. You're like, can you give us any more? I, I can't. They're not. They're not. I mean, they're, they are angels, as I said earlier. They're not little Teletubby, cute little 
cupids with diapers floating around on a cloud. You never, ever see that in the Bible. You never. As a matter of fact, what angels typically tell somebody when they ever encounter an angel is, listen, hey, fear not, you're not gonna die. So apparently, they are so awesome, you feel like you're going to die if you encounter one. But what are they saying? Here's what they're saying. They're saying, holy, 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 holy. That's all they say. They say, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. Holy, uh, you can, there's not like an exclamation point you can put in that language. So what you would do for emphasis is to repeat something. And so there's places in the Bible where they want to talk about like a large pit. Like there's a large pit. Don't fall into it. They'll say, man, that was like a pit pit. Meaning it's a large pit. Or if you were to say, if you were to try to talk about how big a storm is, you would say, we got a storm coming. Well, how big is it, man? It's a storm, storm, it's a big storm. And so what they're saying here is, listen, it's not just he's a holy God. It's like he's holy, he's holy, he's holy. Now, we don't like that word that much, and it's kind of not even in our vernacular. Sometimes holy, we usually think of somebody who acts holier than thou, kind of that legalistic Christian that's always trying to set extra rules for everybody else. I mean, that's kind of what we think about. Kind of stale, kind of lifeless, kind of gray. It's like, you know what? Uh, she's holy. She is just, but what the word actually means, and it's, it's hard to, the word actually means uh, totally different than us. It means set apart. It means, uh, I don't even know. I mean, OMG. It's like, I mean, that's, that is what it means. Not in our league at all. Different, a category killer. And the, what they're saying is, listen, we often tell what you gotta do is we often shrink God. Theologians call this the otherness of God. And what you and I have to understand is we want to reduce God typically just as a slightly bigger, slightly smarter, slightly stronger, more intelligent version of us. You know how I know that? Because sometimes, maybe you said it, we don't usually say it in church out loud, Sometimes it's when God doesn't act like we think God ought to act or doesn't do what we think God ought to do, we put God on trial. How dare you act that way, God? How dare you allow this? If you don't come through in my life here, then I'm certainly not gonna serve you over there. Or sometimes when people get really flippant and really half the time drunk, I mean, but what they, what they will end up saying is like, you know what? When I meet God, I'm gonna tell him a thing or two. Really? Step away from me when you say that. I mean, no, you're gonna go up to the God of the universe and say, I mean, how dare you do X, Y, and Z? That is not what you will say. It's not what you will say at all. Now, you're like, well, pastor, you told us that a lot of times we can go to God with, with anything at all. Uh, you can, the Bible, we'll even see it next week. We'll see one of God's best actually get really blunt with God really blunt with God. It's, you're not gonna see that like in the daily crouton or anything at all. He actually is gonna say, God, you seduced me. So the question is, does God do some stuff we don't understand? Absolutely he does. Does God do some stuff maybe, you know, I wish were different? Yes, absolutely. But somewhere inside, we've gotta be able to say, I'm human, I'm fallible, I'm sinful, I don't know what ultimately is best. I don't know how God's gonna fit all this stuff together. And instead, I choose to trust God. And so like I trust God, he's awesome, he's holy, he knows what he is doing. And you're like, well, it's sure doing it different than I would do it, exactly, because he's holy. He's distinctively different. He's in a different category than us. Isaiah would put it this way a bunch of chapters later. He says, you know what? God would look at us and say, my thoughts are not your thoughts. 
My thoughts are not your thoughts. As high as the heavens are above the earth, so my thoughts are different than your thoughts. Listen to what he's saying. He said, so as the heavens are above the earth. Heavens, he's talking about way up there. He's not saying, you know, my thoughts are a little higher than yours. That's not what he's saying. I mean, what's our son, 93 million miles away? <laughs> and he's not even talking about the sun. He's talking about way past the sun. In other words, your thoughts are not any way, shape, or we are not peers is what he's trying to get across. There is no part in here where it's like, how could you let Uzziah die? There's none of that. Not when he sees God. There's a uh, British political writer who said, if God were small enough to be understood, he would not be big enough to be worshiped. There's a lot of truth in that. Like I can't figure God out. Well, good, because he's distinctively different than we are. And let me go ahead and just put it all on the table. The idea of a God who frightens us is not particularly politically correct today. A God who, that's the response, woe is me for I am undone. That is not a, you don't usually hear that on television. What you and I have got to understand is this. We have so elevated the nearness of God to us that he's my buddy and he's my homeboy and he's my co-pilot and he's my snuggie. We have so elevated that to a unbiblical idea and we've done so at the expense of God's holiness and transcendence. And so what we have is a God that can make us feel warm, but when hell breaks out, he's not up to the task. And the best thing about getting a fresh encounter with God is to say, you know what, I understand. You're, you're not like us in any way at all. And the humility is shown in Isaiah when he's like, woe is me, I am lost. Woe is me, I am lost. It actually means I'm undone. It's the idea of the picture of the glue that had held Isaiah's life together was coming apart at the seams. And what was his glue? His glue was his goodness, his giftedness as a preacher. That was what held him together. And then he gets before a holy God and he's like, I am, this stuff is nothing in front of a holy God. I think you gotta ask yourself as well, what's the glue What's the glue that is holding your life together as well? For some of you, it's money. Others of you, it's popularity. Others of you, it's looks. Others of you, it's family, whatever. And when good things become God things, that is called idolatry. And we take all these laps around the cul-de-sac of stupidity thinking, you know what? That's going to finally satisfy my soul. Those are good things. Those are gifts from a good God. But they do not and are not meant to replace God. That's why he says, woe is me for my lips are unclean. You're like, what is the deal with this guy's lips? I mean, what do you think that is? Seriously, what do you think? What do you do for a living? He's a preacher. He's a prophet. So like the best thing about him was his mouth. The best thing about him. I mean, he'd been preaching for five chapters already. The best thing about him was, you know what? I'm a preacher. I preach God's word, and he does it unapologetically. And so what he's saying here is the best thing about me is not good enough at all. George Whitfield, who's a preacher in the Spawn the Great Awakening, he said he had, he had two major points in his sermons. All right, most preachers have either one or five he had two. So I tried to emulate him today, but he had two major points in his sermons. First, repent of your sins. That makes sense, repent of your sins. But then secondly, what he said is repent of your strengths. 
And his point was this, oftentimes it is our strengths, it's the things we do well, it's what you are good at that actually keeps you from God. That's what we looked at a few weeks ago, and oftentimes what God has to do when you're walking around thinking, man, I am too sexy for my shirt, he's like, well, okay, I'm going to trip you up so you have no place to look but up. And so what's happening with him right here is, uh, again, he's... God is not revealing his sins and his shortcomings to embarrass him. He's not doing it to embarrass you. He's not doing it to humiliate you. He just wants you to know the fact that love, that flourishing, that joy in life is the God of the universe has to have his proper place. Okay, I'm going to, please don't write me an email on this. Please don't. I don't, actually, I don't care. So, because um, um, I mean what I say here, and I say it in love. But... We need to understand this because this encounter blows away Southern culture, Christianity, out of the water. It blows away Bible Belt Christianity out of the water, which basically cultural Christianity basically means, you know what? I believe in God. Hell is hot. I want my ticket to heaven, but I'm going to do what I want, when I want, with who I want. That is not an encounter with God. That's not even biblical Christianity. An encounter with God changes everything. It changes your marriage because it just slays your ego down. It changes your worship because all of a sudden you're with a holy God and you're not inviting God to join you on the marvelous journey of you. You understand, you know, it revolves around him. I love what somebody, there was a, a lady Bible teacher that uh, taught Tim Keller this like years and years and years ago bef before, before you even knew who Tim Keller was. And what he said was, she, she was sitting there and she was teaching him and said this. She said, you know what? Pretend that you, pretend that the, you know, the distance between the earth and the sun is represented. She took out a little piece of paper. She's like, pretend that the distance between uh, the earth and the sun, 93 million miles, is represented by this piece of paper. And then she said, if that's the case, if that's the case, then the distance between the earth and the next star would be represented by 70, a 70 foot high stack of this paper, 70 feet high. But it said, if you were to go from the earth to the furthest galaxy, stacking these papers to represent 93 million miles, it would end up being 312 miles high. And she said this, think about this, Tim. She's like, do you want the God who the Bible says Jesus holds the universe together in his hand with his pinky, do you want that God to relate to you? Do you want to invite that God into your heart to be your assistant? Go think about that. And he said that changed his whole ministry, that it wasn't about him. It wasn't God getting on his plan, it was him getting on on God's plan. So you're like, man, if that's the end of the story, uh, check please. I need to get out of here very quickly. Fortunately, it's not the end of the story because you're like, I want a fresh touch from God. I need, a, I need some grace on my life. I need some grace in my family. I, I, need a, I need to come back to loving God again like it used to be. Well, the second part is just as important as the first one. So look at verse six. It says, then... Then is a great word. It's like then. It's like, you know what? Woe is me, for I am dead. Because by the way, what do you think is going to happen? What do you think Isaiah's thinking? 
Isaiah's thinking, I'm a dead man. That's what woe is me. Woe is me is I'm a dead man. I've, I'm like in the presence of a holy God. All my junk is laid out there. Then one of the seraphim flew to me, having in his hand, this is so amazing, because remember when we talk about every page in the Bible is about Jesus? This is an example. Every page in the Bible is about Jesus, either in shadow form or in substance form. It's all pointing there. Then one of the seraphim flew to me, having in his hand a burning coal that he had taken with tongs from, this is key, from the altar. We'll come back to that. And he touched my mouth. And he says, behold, in other words, pay attention. This has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away. 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 I'm gonna count to three and I just want you to help me. Wherever you are, whichever campus, I just, if you're online, I want you to just say at the count of three, just say, your guilt is taken away. One, two, three. Your guilt is taken away. Say it again, one, two, three. Your guilt is taken away. Now I'll tell you what I want you to do. Let's personalize it. And if you're in Christ, we're gonna come back to this to be able to say, my guilt is taken away. One, two, three. My guilt is taken away. One more time. My guilt is taken away. It says your guilt is taken away and your sin is atoned for. And then what happens is, uh, go to that next, next verse, it says this. And then I heard the voice of the Lord saying, whom shall I send and who will go for us? This is a good Trinitarian formula, by the way. All right, one God, three persons. Whom shall I send? Who will go for us? And then I said, here I am, send me. And then the start of verse nine simply says, and he said, and he said, he said, just, he said, go. And again, what is he thinking at this point when you see some crazy burning angel go and get some hot coal just after you've seen a holy God and he's exposed all of your junk and he's flying towards you? I tell you what he's thinking, he's gonna burn me up. It is all over, I am toast. And what you gotta understand is uh, the whole idea is like from the altar. Uh, we talked about this a bunch, so I'm going to give you the spark note version real quick. From the altar, here's the way this would work. He's talking about Old Testament burnt offerings. And in a nutshell, here's what would happen. So they would sit there, and you'd go in there, and, and you'd put your hand on, the, on a lamb. Uh, to ideas like, you know what, the lamb is taking my sin. And then the priest would slit the throat of the lamb. And then the, all that blood, all that blood would like flow down. It could flow down into, if it was a burnt offering, it would flow down into these hot coals. The whole picture is of the substitutionary sacrifice. It's like, you know what? This lamb right here is taking the sin that you have and it's being transferred. In other words, that lamb is being slain instead of you. And here with Isaiah, he goes down there and he takes a blood-soaked coal and he comes and he applies it to the prophet and says, now your guilt is gone. And what do we understand? We understand. We understand this talking about Jesus. This is talking about Jesus at the cross. Because you see all this sacrifice in the Old Testament, then God goes quiet for 400 years, and then John the Baptist comes out on the scene and looks at Jesus and says, behold, the Lamb of God, not a Lamb of God, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. The Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. In other words, no more lambs have to be done if you're in Christ that that Lamb, the Lamb of God, has taken away the sin of the world. Now here's what you gotta understand. He says it so you don't miss it. Your guilt is taken away. Your sin is atoned for. Atoned for. The word atonement in the Bible means payment. It means payment. It means paid in full. 
it's the same idea that when Jesus hangs on a cross and he says to Telestai, it is finished, what's finished? No more lambs being slain. It is finished. The whole sacrificial system is finished. It is finished means what? That your sin is covered. It is gone away. And loved ones, I don't ever get tired of telling you this over and over and over again. Because there's a time when Isaiah, like 50 chapters later, is going to say, talking about Jesus, and he's going to say, you know what? By his transgressions, by our transgressions, our transgressions were put on him. By his stripes we are healed. And a lot of times, I mean, you're like, well, what's the application for, for all of this? It means that when, you, when you've stumbled and fallen, you have, what do we say all the time? Even as a Christian, you go back to the gospel over and over and over again, again and again and again. What do you do when you've stumbled and fallen? You repent, you fall on the mercy of God, you walk in the gospel. Your past, your sin, your habits, your mistakes, your addictions, they do not define you. If you are in Jesus, only Jesus gets to tell you who you are. And what he says here is you are loved, you're forgiven, you're redeemed, you, your sin has been atoned for. And so that's why so many of us, when we're not grounded in the gospel, we struggle with that. Young ladies, you struggle with this. Young men, you struggle with it. We all struggle with it. Because what do we think? We think, you know what, I'm defi we define ourselves, we label ourselves by a whole bunch of other stuff and the enemy gets in your ear and starts to say, this is who you are. And it runs the whole gamut over all the church today. It's like, you are your past, you are your sin, you are your orientation, you are your addiction, you are your divorce, you are your 401k. Please hear me. If you can say, you know what, I'm in Christ. There's a time when I said, when Jesus said it is finished, that that counted for me. If I've turned from my way of trying to make life work and embraced Jesus by faith, that what he did on the cross, somehow, some way, it counted for me. Then what you've got to understand, whether you've had a good week or a bad week, good month, bad month, whatever, you are not, you are not your past, you are not your sin, you are not your orientation, you are not your addiction, you are not your abortion, you are not your rape, you are not your abuse, you are not your ethnicity, you are not your divorce, you are not your unemployment, you are not your bankruptcy, you are not your affair, you are not your 401k, you are not your job title, you are not your marital status, that is not who you are. And some of you are like, well, that's the most important thing that ever happened to me. If you're in Christ, the most important thing that has ever happened to you is the moment that you believe that what Jesus did on the cross counted for you, and that is what gets to define you. And so when you fail, when we stumble, when we falter, if we don't have a thorough grounding in the gospel and atonement, then you're just going to be like the old proverbial roller coaster, up and down, young, young, young men and women. That's what Dan talked about yesterday afternoon. And so... Um, Isaiah leaves his encounter with God's holiness and God's grace and he leaves him a changed man. If we were to have time, if you were to read the rest of Isaiah, everything changes with Isaiah. His writing gets more passionate. His preaching gets more personal, if you will. God uses him in a, just in a phenomenal, phenomenal way. He's got confidence before God. Why does he have confidence before God? He has confidence before God, not because of what he's done, but because of what was done for him. And that's what you've got to get in your mind. That's what we have to get in our identity. You're not what you have done. You're what Jesus has done for you. And, here, and we know a bunch more than Isaiah. I mean, Isaiah's writing all these kind of, specifically for an Old Testament writer, but not, a, not half of what we should know. I mean, we see the cross. We got to look back at the details of the cross. He's looking forward to the details of the cross. 
And when we have this, when we got confidence before God, you've got confidence before other people. What's that great, uh, great theologian Tupac said? He said, I ain't mad at you. All right, I ain't mad at you. I got nothing but love for you. All right, go do your thing, boy. I mean, that, that is, I've never quoted Tupac before, but I'm like, man, that is, that, that's like on point right there. So when you look at this, you, what, what do you do when you get a bunch of grace like this? What do you do when you get this kind of grace? What do you do when five minutes before you thought you were a dead man and all of a sudden you've been given new life? What do you do with that? Well, I mean, Isaiah says it. It's like, pick me. Here am I. Send me. What do you do? He's, he's volunteered. A lot of you are like, you don't volunteer. You're voluntold. That's what you are. Until you get conviction or until you get some kind of somebody putting the heavy guilt on you. But what do you do when a holy God gives you grace? You do whatever God wants. That's what you do. There's not any I'll consider, I'll think about working in preschool, maybe one day again when COVID is like nine years old. There's none of that at all. There's none of that. Why is that? Because the gospel never stops with just you. You think, you know, the, the gospel is that Jesus loves me and has a wonderful plan for my life and Jesus saved me, period. It's not the whole gospel. The gospel actually is that you were an enemy with God and then God, it, your sin cost God so much he sent his own son and that he died on the cross that when you repent and embrace him by faith, yes, he does save you, but he also sends you out for the glory of his name. So it's not God loves you and saves you, period. It's God loves you and saves you and then sends you out. And um, begin to think about just a fresh encounter with the Lord. And I know for some of you, it's, you've, you know, honestly, I've, I've, I felt inadequate even talking about the Southern culture deal. But if God is, God is gracious and God is the one that saves, my thought would be that for some of you, you're like, you know what? God convicted me that I, I've never been converted Maybe you grew up in this church. Maybe you're a deacon. Maybe you're a staff member. You've never been converted. All that God wants to do in your life starts at the moment of conversion. And that's where it begins. You're like, I'm not sure I'm converted. I'm not sure I'm a follower of Jesus. I'm not sure I am. If you're not sure, I'm not trying to be harsh. If you're not sure, you're probably not. Okay? It'd be like saying, if you're, if you're married, somebody's like, hey, are you married? I, you know, I don't know. I mean, you know. You know if you're married or not. You know if you're a Christian or not. And if you're not a Christian, that's, that's, the, that's the start of a fresh encounter with God, right where you're sitting. I believe that what you did on the cross counted for me. Change me and send me out. But here's what I think for a lot of us as well, and I, I tried to think of a way to put this together, and so I spent a little time on a, a prayer I want to show you. So uh, here's a prayer. And I want you to listen to it because I don't want all of you to pray this. Because if, if you all sit there and you all stand and everybody in Hendersonville stands and all that stuff, and I've missed the boat a little bit because it doesn't need to be that easy. I don't want you to stand. It was great. I saw students do this yesterday. I'm like, you know what? I'm going to copy that because that is exactly what needs to be with this one. So let me read it and explain it, and then I'm going to have you stand if you want that to be uh, true in your life. And if not, then grace, that's fine. But, uh, and then I'll throw it to the other campuses. Here's what it is. Praying for a fresh encounter with God. Don't try to write it down. We'll stick it out on social later on today or tomorrow or whatever. Just listen to the words. Holy God, I invite you to do a new work in my heart. Some degree we could all pray for that. These mercies are new every morning. I want to learn something new about God every day. 
All right, but I invite you to do a new work in my heart. Please forgive me for my casual attitude about sin. It's just casual. It's better than my neighbor. It's not as, you know, but when you're in front of God, it's just, it's open scandal. No more playing church and cultural Christianity. No more playing around. No more putting God in a box. No more putting him on my Sunday morning for one hour each day and then not having that reality spill over into my business, into my money, into my marriage, all of that. No more playing church. No more cultural Christianity. And here it is. I want to see you reigning. It's the idea is on the throne. I want to see you reigning in my life, my home, and my relationships. And then here's the part I want you to absorb before you stand up. Thank you for your grace that brought me in. If you know Jesus, Jesus saved you. Jesus brought you in. Jesus, is there a mystery to it? There is a mystery. What we know is Jesus saved you. It wasn't some guy with a slick presentation. It wasn't some preacher putting the heavy on you. Jesus saved you. And here's what he says. Thank you for your grace that brought me in. And by that grace, send me out. Send me out. In Jesus' name is for his glory, amen. So here's what I'm gonna have you do. Here's what I'm not gonna do. What we're not gonna do is I'm not gonna have the keyboards behind me. What we're not gonna do is turn the lights down low. What we're not gonna do is sing an emotional song about come to the altar or you know remembrance or whatever. What I'm not gonna do is have you close your eyes. What I'm not gonna do is have you bow your head. But if you cannot make a stand in here, at home, in Brevard, if you cannot make that stand at church or in your living room, I mean, Lord knows you're not going to be able to actually go out in confidence at the country club or over at the business park or over at, where, at your home even. And so here's what I'm going to do. And uh, again, if everybody stands, fail on my part. But I want those of you that says that prayer, that prayer, I want that prayer to be true of me, that's what I want. Then whatever campus you're on, including Arden, I want you to stand and remain standing and then I'm gonna pray for you, pray for us, campus pastors will pray. So at the count of three, if that's the prayer, you're like, you know what, I wanna be sent, I'm gonna stand, I want God on the throne once again. I want that fresh encounter coming on his terms. One. Two, three, and just stand. Awesome. Awesome. Campus pastors, you guys pray for you. Your campus, let me pray for folks here. Father, thanks for being a God who is totally different than us. Totally different than us. It is, exposes, exposes a lot of stuff that uh, is trivial in the long run. God, thanks for this mountain peak of Scripture. Thanks for taking one of your best and just knocking it to the ground with your holiness, but yet bringing him right back up with your grace. God, I want to pray for me. I want to pray for our church. I want to pray for every person standing that we would experience a fresh encounter with you. Not just warmed over, not just doing church, 
not just trying to check off the calendar, but a fresh encounter with a holy God who sends his grace and invites us into his story. God, thanks for this week and weekend and seeing students in so many ways lead out. God, I pray we would take that as an encouragement, spur us on. Our prayer is that you would be on the throne of our lives, of our heart, of our homes, of our businesses, of our relationships. God, help us to repent well. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. All right. Um, let me, in all seriousness, if you didn't stand in some ways, let me just say thank you for the integrity to stay seated. Thanks for doing that. If you see somebody around you that you know that also stood, just kind of say, you know what, just think to yourself, I'm going to include them in my prayers this week as well. Um, lastly, uh, if you're watching online, thank you so much for joining us online. Let us know we can serve you or help you, okay? All right. Hopefully it means a little bit more, but you are loved and you are sent.